Uh, my name is Jeff. If we haven't met yet, we're thrilled to be celebrating with you. We're starting a new series today, which I'm really excited we'll talk about. Uh, I want to say Happy Father's Day. Um, and kind of, you clap for our dads, do it. And, uh, and there will be chocolate in the back for every man, every man, whether you're a dad or not, you can have a chocolate at the end of the service. They weren't out at the beginning, though. I wasn't sure if they would be there, so I, I told Myron to put them out at the end, but they'll be there. Uh, we're going to start this morning uh, talking about a guy named Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, many of you will know the name. Some of you won't. He was born in 1821 in St. Petersburg, Russia. He was a gifted intellect, a, a, a skilled writer. He was living during Tsarist Russia, and at the age of 27, he got involved with an intellectual group of people who were privately beginning to verbalize some of their criticism of the Tsarist regime. It's dangerous work, and it got them into a lot of trouble. And they ended up getting arrested and put into, I don't know, somewhat ironically, St. Peter and Paul prison for a few months, and they were sentenced to be executed. On the day of their execution, they were brought into the parade grounds, and their crimes were read aloud, and the czar's sentence of death was pronounced. It's a true story. I mean, you're going to think as I continue with the story that this is like a Hollywood made-up story. It's not. (laughs) And I can tell you as a pastor, and I hope, actually I hope, as we continue to grow in compassionate curiosity with ourselves and one another, I hope we learn to understand this, believe this, embrace this, real life is way more interesting than in the movies and TV. It's going to sound like a movie, but this is real life. Real life is way more interesting. The stories of the people sitting around you are really interesting. Your story is fascinating. Well, these people, Dostoevsky and his crowd, they were blindfolded. A firing squad was assembled, and they went through the whole routine And the order was given for the rifles to be raised. And at the last moment, this is where it feels like a movie, but it's real. A horse comes galloping in and and the rider yells out in Russian, basically, halt, stop, cease, don't go forward with this. The czar has commuted the sentence. Now it is four years hard labor in Siberia. It's four years of exile. Dostoevsky would write about this moment for the rest of his life. Because from his vantage point, from his perspective, at that moment, he, he knew his life was over. He knew that in the next second, the guns would fire and he would be dead. But suddenly, out of nowhere, with the, with the hint of a galloping horse, his life is given back to him. And Dostoevsky went on to say that it, it awakened something in him. Now, he wasn't free, but he was still alive. Immediately, irons were put on his feet that he would live in for the next four years. He bore the scars upon his body from those irons for the rest of his life. It was winter. He was put on a sled, and he got severe frostbite on the journey into Siberia. And as I was like thinking through things, I found myself wanting to say, you and I can imagine that it was awful in the 1800s in a prison in Siberia, but my hunch is we can't even imagine it. We have no idea what it would be like to be shackled for four years with untreated frostbite in a prison in Siberia. 
I think Dostoevsky actually writes a bit about his experience in his book, House of the Dead. But the story goes that as he was walking into the prison, he was handed a copy of the New Testament. And for four years, it's the only thing he had to read. And he would say that it awakened his dormant Christian faith. Although he had written, written quite successfully prior to being imprisoned, after his four years of imprisonment in Siberia, of suffering, of hard labor, of misery, he begins to write again and he is drastically changed. Because that's what happens when you encounter the living Christ. <laughs> I mean, that's really what we're going to celebrate this morning as we baptize people. We're going to celebrate that Jesus Christ is alive. And when we encounter him, he changes us. We are not the same. That's the testimony. We are not the same because we've encountered the Lord of life. And all of Dostoevsky's most famous masterpieces come after this time, and they somehow profoundly involve the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may know of some of his books. His first was published at age 45. I've been told people that you do your greatest things between 40 and 60, so... Be excited about that. 45, he began publishing. He had Crime and Punishment, then The Idiot, then Demons, and then The Brothers Karamazov. Those are probably his four greatest achievements. And it gets interesting to those of us gathered here quite a few years later, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. People have said that during the Soviet era, there were spiritual, several spiritual revivals that broke out among Russian intellectuals. And if you know anything about the Soviet era, you know that Bibles were confiscated and churches were shut down and it was illegal to preach the gospel. So you ask, how? How were there these revivals in the Soviet era? And one answer given by someone who has studied this deeply said, the communists took away our Bibles, but they didn't take away Dostoevsky. (laughs) And that's how we found the gospel. Now, I think you'll see as we journey through our text this morning, Dostoevsky's story just kept echoing in my mind. I knew his story, but as I read Paul's story, we're going to get very personal with Paul in this series. I just kept thinking of Dostoevsky, both because of what he encountered and what Paul is going to describe, but also because of what I want to do in this series. Our new series is called The Cruciform Life, A Life Shaped by the Cross. And I want, I'll talk more about this, but I want to come out of this series with a shared language vocabulary understanding in our church family that the cruciform shape is the ultimate standard of beauty. And this goes back to Dostoevsky because Dostoevsky is credited basically with the quote, beauty will save the world. Comes from... I don't know. Other people love Brothers Karamazov. My favorite book is The Idiot. And it's it's from that book, Beauty Will Save the World. So I was thinking a lot of Dostoevsky this week. What we're going to do in this series is kind of an introduction. It's a baptism Sunday. We're going to be a little bit quicker than normal. But we're going to talk a lot about the cross in this series. And we're going to talk about the cross as the cross. But I want to remind you, I think I need to keep reminding myself, the cross by itself is a piece of wood. Wood put together in a certain way to painfully execute a human being and strike fear into all others who would dare challenge those who are in control. That's what the cross is. 
But it's Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, on the cross, who transforms this weapon of death into the ultimate tree of life. (laughs) That's what Jesus does to this piece of wood, this devious instrument of death. Turns it into the tree of life. And there's two things that I want to do, really, overall, as we journey through this series in the summer, and it somewhat relates to our last series. Our Our last series, I think in a unique way, really resonated with our church family. And I don't even know that I was overly intentional about this, but as I step back and I listen to people, we really have gained some new vocabulary in our family. (laughs) I mean, I I find people talking a lot about Babylon and modern-day Babylon. I see Babylon. Somebody said to me this week, Jeff, I pulled out a magazine, and the first three things on the cover, I said, Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. They were telling me what to be afraid of, and I saw it right away trying to, to bring toxin into my soul. I could, I could name it. Many of you have talked to me about, oh, you know what, I'm starting to see the demonic disorder and the chaos in my life. And for the first time, I'm seeing the craftiness of the satanic and this false order of Babylon that I run to to rescue me from the disorder. And I'm realizing the false order isn't the true life that Jesus offers. I've been running after the wrong thing. We've been, we've been gaining the shared vocabulary. I want the beauty of the cruciform to become part of our language here at Crossview. That we would recognize this as the truest standard of what is ultimately beautiful. In a book actually conveniently titled, Beauty Will Save the World, I came across this quote. In order to recover the true form and original beauty that is integral to Christianity, we need an ideal form, a, a true standard, an accurate template, a faithful model to which we can look, to which we must conform. For historic Christianity, this has always been Jesus Christ upon the cross, which is a holy irony since crucifixion was designed to be ghastly and hideous. But this is the mystery of the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which attains in retrospect an eternal glory and beauty through the resurrection, is the axis of Christianity around which everything else revolves. Thus, the cruciform, the shape of a cross, is the eternal form that endows Christianity with its mysterious beauty. Simply put, the cross is the form that makes Christianity beautiful. The cross is the beauty of Christianity because it is at the cross that we encounter co-suffering love and costly forgiveness in its most beautiful form. And so I'm hoping that we see the beauty again and again of the cruciform as we journey through 2 Corinthians together. And I'm hoping that the cross challenges you and encourages you and comforts you, but ultimately that it changes you. As Jesus' cruciform way of life becomes your own. And again, I want you to think about, as you follow Jesus into this standard of beauty, you become beautiful as he is beautiful. And as we come out of a series on modern day Babylon, think about how freeing. We talked about the good shepherd last week who cares for your soul, restores your soul. How much will your soul be restored if this becomes your standard of beauty rather than all the standards of beauty that modern day Babylon impose on you? Because Babylon tells you what's beautiful. A lot of it's just lies. (laughs) 
Now, the cross constantly comes to us saying, this is true beauty. And I actually believe every single human being deep down inside believes it, sees it, knows it, wants it, even if they don't always recognize it. (laughs) But you'll become beautiful as you follow Jesus down this path. The second reason, even as it, that, I, that, that I'm excited about this series, what I want to see happen, and as it relates even to our previous series, is that, as you'll see in 2 Corinthians, a lot of what Paul is doing is defending his apostleship. There's a lot of tension between him and the church in Corinth. And one of the things we talked about in our previous series is that in, in modern-day Babylon, you and I are trained and equipped with a lot of tools that we pick up in Babylon. But they're tools of warfare and death. And when we're unaware, we end up trying to use these tools. You can fear, shame, all kinds of manipulation. We, we try to use these tools to build the kingdom of God, and you can't. And so one of the things we said in our last series is we have to learn to lay down these tools we've picked up in Babylon and either let Jesus redeem them as he did with the cross or just pick up the cross itself. And what Paul is going to do in this series is model for us what he's learned from Jesus about laying down the tools he picked up in Babylon and taking up his cross. We're going to see someone who is under attack, someone who is being falsely criticized. False stories are written about him, and we're going to see how he defends himself in light of the ultimate standard of beauty that is the cross, cruciformity. So that's why I'm excited. I think it's going to be a really a good summer, maybe a challenging summer, but I think it'll pick up right where we left off, good discipleship and learning how to live like Jesus. Well, as I said, we're in 2 Corinthians, and I was going back through my seminary notes. If you know, at the beginning, if you were with us, at the beginning of the year, we went through Deuteronomy, and one of the things I said is, if you ever study Deuteronomy in an academic setting, if you're going through the Bible, unless you're doing just Deuteronomy, you whiz through the book, <laughs> Because Moses is giving these sermons that's basically recounting everything that's just happened. And even though Deuteronomy is really important to the Old Testament, and the most quoted book by Jesus, actually, we tend to run through it really fast because we've already covered like, the historical material in the previous books. And 2 Corinthians is a lot like that. I, went, I, I pulled out my notebook from my class. Dr. D.A. Carson taught that class. I go through things. We spent a lot of time on 1 Corinthians. We whiz through 2 Corinthians. You just don't you got to get to the next letter, right? And so in general, 2 Corinthians tends to be a letter that just, most people aren't really familiar with it. So I'm excited. I'm excited for myself to learn a little bit more as I preach through it, but just for our church family to grow in this. Uh, you'll, You'll see it's an extremely personal letter. There's no other letter that's quite like it in the New Testament. Paul is pouring out his own person. One author says this, here sharply broken off with none of the jagged edges filed down is a chunk of Paul's life. (laughs) That's what we're going to get in 2 Corinthians, a chunk of Paul's life, unedited, uncensored, but amazingly interesting. It's fascinating. (laughs) And we'll get into this more in weeks to come, but it breaks out into three sections. It's pretty obvious. Chapters 1 to 7 are are kind of a unit of thought for Paul, chapters 8 and 9, and then Chapters 10 to 13, which we'll get to when we get to, are something almost altogether different. But of course, we'll be starting in these first seven chapters and and kind of the feel of the first seven chapters. And I want to tell you this because I want you to be, you won't feel it as much this morning, but certainly picking up next week, you will. 
It's, it's got a, a feel of a tension-filled relief. Paul is really, there's some kind of strife between him and the church, and he wasn't sure how it was going to go, but he has a sense that they're going to be reconciled. And that's, that's the sense, that's the feeling but we don't know all the details. As we journey through the letter, we'll get a little bit more information. But it, it really, entering into 2 Corinthians is a lot like an experience I think we've all had. <laughs> you walk into the kitchen and two of your family members are arguing about something. And you don't know what started the argument. And you're not sure how it's going to finish. But you can understand what they're saying in the midst of the argument, right? That's kind of what's happening in 2 Corinthians. We don't know everything that happened that started this tension. And honestly, when you get to chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, we aren't really sure how it's going to resolve itself. We don't, know. We, don't, we don't know the plot line, if you will, but we can understand while they're arguing in the moment. That's kind of, we just get this snapshot of the moment of the tension. That's what we'll walk through in chapters 1 to 7. This morning, what we're going to do, again, rather quickly, is journey through verses 1 to 11 in chapter 1. And there's always more that we could say than we're going to get to say. So I'll just tell you the lens that I want to draw out for us. I think it's appropriate as we begin this series. And because it's Baptism Sunday, and we've got three people who are excited to proclaim their allegiance to Jesus and to declare that they trust in the good news, we're going to hone in on the gospel. And one of my favorite New Testament scholars, he's since passed away, but I remember him often talking about Paul's Midas touch. If you know anything about King Midas, it is said that everything he touched turned to gold. (laughs) Well, this scholar used to say that everything Paul touches turns to gospel. (laughs) Everything turns to gospel. Everything is filtered through this standard of beauty that is the cruciform, Jesus Christ on the cross, arms stretched out for you and for me, for the world. So as we kind of run through verses 1 to 11, we're going to keep our eyes on how Paul is touching everything and turning it into gospel. Even even just this introduction in a normal standard form of a first century Roman Empire letter, you would read something like this, Paul to the church, greetings. That's how every letter would kind of begin. But Paul, again, everything he touches turns to gospel, so he has to elaborate. It just just has to come out. So chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I can't help it. And it's even the beginning. Now, again, we'll get here more next week. But it's, it's almost the beginning of Paul's defense of his apostleship. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And from our our brother Timothy. Timothy is with Paul. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth and to all his holy people throughout Greece. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Paul can't contain it. It's not just greetings. It's grace and peace. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about this, this chosen by the will of God to be an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ. Paul is reflecting back on his conversion story. It's a pretty famous story. You you may already know it if you don't. Uh, Luke will write about Paul's conversion story three times. It's it's like important to the early church. Three times in the book of Acts, Luke includes it. I want to read. It begins in chapter 9 and then I think chapter 22. I'm going to read from chapter 26. Paul is kind of sharing his story. He's on 
trial in a sense. And he's, um, he's reflecting back and he's, and he's sharing how he used to try to do everything he could to oppose the followers of Jesus. I'm going to pick up in chapter 26 of Acts, verse 11. Many times, Paul speaking, I had them, these followers of Jesus, punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus, to blaspheme their Lord. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. And one day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About, about noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, and, and Paul means this. We'll actually get a taste of this as we read through 2 Corinthians. A light brighter than the sun from heaven shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. <laughs> Paul knows something about the will of God. And it's even interesting here that as Jesus is, should make you feel good, as Jesus is even talking to Paul, Paul persecuting the followers of Jesus. Jesus interprets as him being persecuted himself. Maybe even some of where Paul gets his theology of the body of Christ. Verse 15, who are you, Lord, I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have heard to you, I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. We would say to, to leave where, where Satan is the king in Babylon and to come home to Jesus Christ, to the new Jerusalem. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. In other words, when Paul says, I was, I was chosen by the will of God, what he's, what he's trying to tell people is, look, I wasn't looking for Jesus. There was no, like, curiosity. There was no wrestling with this Lord, liar, lunatic thing with Jesus. It's like, I was persecuting his followers. And then all of a sudden, he shows up the risen Lord, and now I'm all in. <laughs> and you got to understand, from the moment I was saved, he sent me to the Gentiles. What am I supposed to do, church in Corinth? This is who I am. This is who God's called me to be. I know nothing else. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot there in just that little phrase, right? And then grace and peace, right? I mean, even for Paul, it's almost like everything is gift from God. Everything flows out of who God is, right? Jesus is the tree of life on the cross. And it's all grace. It's all gift. It's nothing we deserve. And then out of that flows peace and shalom. <laughs> peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with one another. I mean, Paul just... He keeps stumbling over the gospel, just trying to do a little greeting. He can't help himself. It's just who he is. Well, let's keep going. Verse 3, we're going to encounter something that's kind of unique, actually. Uh, most of Paul's letters to the churches, if you read them, they begin with a thanksgiving or a prayer of thanksgiving. And Paul kind of outlines in his mind where he's going with the rest of the letter. That's what happens in most of his letters to the churches. But in this letter, again, it's uniquely personal, and we'll talk more about what's going on. But I think Paul is, what he's going to do actually at 2 Corinthians is he's, he's going to kind of stream of consciousness, play out a series of events in his mind as they've played out chronologically in his relationship with the church in Corinth. That'll make more sense next week if you just hang with me on that. 
But something happened to Paul (laughs) that was scary. And we'll get to that in verse 8. It's also why I was thinking of Dostoevsky this week. And so what God rescues Paul. And I think he just, this is the beginning of the chronological flow in his mind. And instead of having a thanksgiving for the churches, he's just so grateful that God rescued him. That's just where it's so personal. It's not about, you'll see, it's not about the churches, but it is about the church. But Paul's going to start with his own story. And instead of a prayer of thanksgiving, it's, it's more of what we would call a doxology, I think. It's a blessing, and if we were Jewish, we would call it a baraka. He's going to bless God, praise God. Verse 3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father, and he's going to pick up on this. Again, normally, what we read early on goes through the whole letter. It's really going to, he's going to pick up on this here. He's the... He's the source of all comfort, but he's really only going to talk about comfort here. <laughs> so I think he's really primarily talking about his own experience of God. But he's blessing God, and when we bless God, we have to include what we mean by God. Paul means the God whom we now know as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would say, like Father, like Son, if you want to know what God is like, you'll look at Jesus. If you want to know the ultimate expression of who God is, you look at Jesus on the cross. If you want to know what God has to say, get to know Jesus because everything God wants to say to you, he said through the person and ministry of Jesus. That's why we're really excited about Jesus here at Crossview. (laughs) This is the father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He's the father from whom all mercies flow. It describes his character. He's the one full of mercy. We know that from the cruciform standard of beauty. Out of this character of love, of mercy, then comes comfort, comfort to Paul. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He's the ultimate revelation. That's that's what we meet in Jesus. Everything God does, he now does through Jesus Christ. And Paul, throughout his writing, is going to wrestle with some of the mystery of the Christian understanding of a Trinitarian God. Even here you find him kind of trying to, to talk about his experience of Father, Son, and then in many parts of his writing, the Holy Spirit. I'll just say this here today. When Paul is writing, the Father is always the subject of the saving verbs. The Son, Jesus Christ, is always the mediator of the saving event. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the saving realities to our lives. That's just the way Paul thinks about things as you read through his writings. Let's hone in a little bit more on this comfort. Verse 4, he comforts us in all our troubles. It's going to get a little wordy here, but you'll get a a feel for what he's doing. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. That's key. Pay attention to that. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. 
We'll talk more about these sufferings of Christ as we journey through 2 Corinthians. We won't be able to get away with it. This morning, Baptism Sunday, I want to hone in a little bit on this comfort. Paul says God will comfort us in all of our afflictions, every one of them. And I like to remind us when we come across passages like this that he doesn't say console. <laughs> a lot of times we think of consoling, we, we, we picture you know, someone patting us on the back, wrapping a fuzzy blanket around us and giving us a hot chocolate. And I think consoling sometimes is when we, we need someone to be with us, but we, you almost just get brought back to still a, a state of unhappiness, right? It's just, it's just enough to move you. You're just surviving the day. When, when the Bible talks about comfort, it, it's going beyond this idea. The word Paul uses here over and over again in these verses is way more than consolation. It, it meets people where they are. And what, what it does, what Paul is trying to describe, and you'll see it more as we read through the other verses, God is going to bring you, as he comforts you, bring you to a point where you are now strong enough to see new hope. Where something has buoyed your soul out of the pit of despair, and you now see new possibilities you were mired in the mud and you, and you, and you didn't know how to move forward and now there's, there's, new, there's new ways forward. Uh, I, I said this before we did Isaiah at one point and I was spending time listening to an Old Testament scholar, John Oswald, and he was talking about this idea of comfort in Isaiah but throughout the Bible. And he said, you know, when the Bible is talking about comfort, again, it's not just a pat on the back. It's not just a warm, cozy blanket. But, but what God does is he infuses your skeletal system with metal, <laughs> which if you've ever watched the X-Men, how can you not think of Wolverine, right? That's the story of Wolverine, this comic book character who has adamantium fused into his skeletal system, indestructible, right? And that's what God does when he comforts you. He doesn't just there, there. No, he strengthens you so that you have new hope, so that you can walk forward, so that the sufferings don't hold you down, but they lead you to new life and resurrection life and new possibilities and new opportunities. That's what, that's what, that's what comfort is. But I also want you to see, and I think it's pretty clear in these verses, that, that Midas gospel touch. The cruciform standard that has overwhelmed Paul's imagination. And, and it's, the, it's the most beautiful thing to him. And he can see nothing else but the beauty of the gospel. Paul is unable to do this any other way. He's talking about his own experience. And he's talking about how God has comforted him and will see rescued him. But you can't miss it. The bottom line for Paul is not what comes to him. <laughs> I mean, these ver it's not about Paul at all. Paul just can't think differently from this. He can't stop at what happens to him. Yeah, God's comforting him, but it only happened so he could comfort others. <laughs> when you see that, God's, yes, it, but it's not about Paul. I mean, this is what, maybe, maybe you have trouble imagining yourself living now. I'm so consumed. I live in Babylon. I'm afraid. I got to protect myself. I'm telling you, the more and more, and maybe some of it will happen this summer as we journey together the more and more the cruciform becomes your ultimate standard of beauty, the more you will learn how to live this way, 
to not be so consumed with yourself, even in difficult times, to see by the grace of God how he is strengthening you. And, and, and even if hard things happen to you, how God will redeem it and use it for the good of others. You will become a channel of blessing to others. Yes, God will bless you, but it's not about that. It's about how God will bless you so you can bless others. That's what Paul says. That's his gospel touch. He can't see it any other way. That's just how Paul views things. And it's important for the Corinthian church, as we'll see, because it's a pretty self-centered church. And again and again, Paul is trying to show them, look, we're not, we're not gathering to talk just to how blessed. Oh, we're so blessed. We're so, no, we're gathering together. Yes, we're blessed, but we're blessed so that we can bless others. That's the beauty. That's the gospel touch. All right, well, we'll get a little bit more specific here on what, what was he comforted from? Verse 8, and you'll see why I was thinking of Dostoevsky this week. Verse 8, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. Something happened. And listen to the language. I mean, this is pretty intense. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. I do not think that is rhetoric. I think that is sincere. Now, we would love to know the specifics. We don't know. There's many guesses. Some guess some of his imprisonment. Most, most guess some kind of really, really, really intense illness, right? Without the medical treatment that you and I would get. He just, he said it was beyond his ability to endure. And he said, we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. Paul's saying, I got a death sentence. <laughs> I knew, I knew that I was going to die. Like that's, there was no other way. But then he says, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and we learned to rely only on God. Which God? The God who is revealed through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who raises the dead. And listen to Paul. You can almost hear him getting excited. God did rescue us from mortal danger. We were going, he rescued us and he'll rescue us again. We've placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. I just love And you are helping us by praying for us. We could do a whole sermon on prayer on this, the importance of prayer. That's why we we love to pray. That's why we ask for your prayer requests. We want to be praying for each other. It unites us. God does things through prayer. And many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Paul was at death's door. And we'd love to know the details. We don't know all the details, but somehow God comforted him. God rescued him. And Paul says, and God, God did this. He redeemed it so that I can be a comfort to others and a blessing to others. And, and maybe, maybe church in Corinth, you can learn from me as I learn from Jesus. Because I've been called by God to be an apostle. And I know something about the character of this God, the mercy of this God. I've talked to the living Jesus. I know about his heart and his love. I know that he is generous. And if you can begin to see the generosity of this God and the way mercy just flows from him, you will begin to orient yourself more and more to his grace, to recognize everything as God coming to rescue you. Even in the midst of hard times, you will develop a thankful heart. In another letter, Paul is going to call the church to be thankful in all circumstances, and Paul himself is going to live that out. I was on the verge of death. I thought I was going to die. God rescued me. Praise be to God. Thankful to God. When it's all done right, God's grace is demonstrated in such a way that that you see it 
and others see it. And there's just this holy momentum, grateful hearts. Well, I want to end with a quote um, about this cruciform beauty, and then we'll pray and transition into our baptisms. I'll kind of keep us moving here this morning. But try to keep this in your mind as we journey through this series together. It's time to recover the form and beauty of Christianity. Our enduring icon of beauty and the standard by which we gauge the beauty of our actions is the cruciform. The cross is a beautiful mystery, a mystery where an unexpected beauty is in the process of rescuing the world from its ugliness. Beauty will save the world. This is the surprising beauty of the cross when seen through the prism of the resurrection. The cross made beautiful is the ultimate triumph of God and his grace. If the crucifixion of Christ can be made beautiful, then there is hope that all the ugliness of the human condition can be redeemed by its beauty. (laughs) So I know you'll be buoyed and encouraged by these testimonies and the baptism, but I want to pray for all of us, that that you would be comforted today. And maybe you have been mired a bit in the mud of the ugliness of the human condition. I pray that God would, would comfort you, would infuse your skeletal system with adamantium, indestructible metal, so you stand up and you're strengthened and you're able to see the way God redeems. There's new possibilities. If God can can take this instrument of death and turn it into a symbol of hope in life. He can do anything in your life. He has rescued you. You're here. And he will rescue you again. Amen? All right, let's pray. Uh, First, Holy Spirit, since you apply to us the truth and the power of the gospel, we are going to invite you right now to comfort us, to drive these truths deep, deep into our soul, to give us strength, to give us a new perspective. Uh, Jesus, I believe many of us have bought into the lies of Babylon and our, and our view of beauty is corrupted to the core. <laughs> and so I pray for our church, I pray for all of us, that we would begin to see the cruciformity Jesus Christ on the cross, deep in our soul, we would know, we would understand, we would believe it is, it is the truest standard of beauty. And then we would orient our lives around bringing that beauty into the world. And Spirit of God, I pray that you would be tangibly present as we celebrate life change, as we celebrate these baptisms, as we celebrate the work that only you can do. It's all grace. You have rescued us from the dominion of darkness. You have seen us in the midst of our sin and our depravity, and you have reached into our pit of despair, and you have lifted us to new life. You have forgiven us. You have made us whole again. May we never forget that. May we always live with hearts of gratitude, grateful for the gospel, the good news, grateful for Jesus, grateful for all you've done. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.